0: I still remember the first time I visited 400 Beacon Street. I was a student in the Christian Science Sunday School in a nearby town, and one weekend, our teacher took the class on a field trip to visit several of Mary Baker Eddy's former homes, driving us first to Lynn and Swampscott, Massachusetts, and then to Chestnut Hill. My first impression of 400 Beacon Street was that it was big. Very big. All that house for just one person?
1: What you just heard was Heather Vogel Frederick reading the opening lines to the preface of her book, Life at 400 Beacon Street, Working in Mary Baker Eddy's Household, published in 2019 by Longyear Press. Hello, I'm Jonathan Eder, host of Seekers and Scholars, a podcast from the Mary Baker Eddy Library, and it is our joy to have Heather as our guest to discuss her book. Welcome, Heather. Heather.
0: Thank you, Jonathan. I'm delighted to be here.
1: Well, it's, it's wonderful to have you, and your book is just a real feast. I have feasted on it, I believe, three times at this point. <laughs> Seconds, please. Seconds, I, I keep saying. <laughs> um, so it's a wonderful contribution for those who really want to get a deeper understanding of Mary Baker Eddy's life and what was going on in those early years of the Christian science movement. So, Heather, you've had the unique opportunity to research in full that question you asked yourself as a child. Why is this house so big? So, what brought you back to 400 Beacon Street, Mary Baker Eddy's final residence, where she lived from 1908 to 1910? And what did you find out as to why this house was the way it was?
0: Sure. Well, I came back in a professional capacity this time. Mm -hmm. I had come to work for Longyear Museum, which, as you know, is just on the road in... Brookline, Massachusetts. It's an independent historical museum whose focus is to help advance the understanding of Mary Baker Eddy's life and work. Longyear owns eight historical homes in which Mrs. Eddy once lived and worked, and among them is 400 Beacon Street. I think it was my first week on the job, I ended up standing in the kitchen. The house was undergoing the first phase of renovation and restoration, and we were in the kitchen looking at linoleum samples or something along those lines, And gosh, I just looked around and thought, wow, what would it be like to work in this house? What would it have been like to work in this home? So that's what brought me back. And I soon found myself thrust into the heart of the house because that question (laughs) quickly evolved (laughs) into what was going to be a series of articles for our website. But the further I got into it, the deeper I got into it, I realized, oh, we have enough material for a book here. Right. So that's how it began.
1: Well, it is an extraordinary place to visit. It's been a while since I've been there. Currently, it's under renovation, so I'll have to be a little bit patient before revisiting. I'm very excited to see what that renovation is going to bring us and bring as a visitor experience. But I'd love to read a little bit more from the preface. Sure. These sentences that you wrote really stood out to me. Quote, Mrs. Eddy's household staff were, for the most part, ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances, in many cases plucked from obscurity and from all walks of life, and invited to come live and work in one of the most mentally active, high-profile households in the world, the home of the discoverer, founder, and leader of Christian science. It's such an interesting way to describe life at 400 Beacon Street. What was it about your research into the home that made you call it out as a place that was one of the most mentally active households in the world?
0: Really, the mental work that went on in that home was at the core of the house itself, uh, mm-hmm. the activity in the house itself, the thought and care that was going into shepherding this growing religious movement. Right. Everything that Mrs. Eddy did was based on prayer. She turned to the Bible constantly for guidance, and she expected her household to do the same. This was a very prayerful group. Mm -hmm. And in fact, as you know, there were people hired among her staff who were metaphysical workers. Their job was to pray about situations in the household, in the church, in the world, whatever Mrs. Eddy directed them to pray about. I learned recently that at Pleasant View, uh, Mrs. Eddy and the household subscribed to seven newspapers. Seventh, that's a lot.
1: Well, that's impressive, the amount of uh, reading they were doing about current events while living in Pleasant View, which was Mary Baker Eddy's previous residence in New Hampshire. Were they reading as voraciously in Chestnut Hill in Massachusetts?
0: I can only assume that that was the same at 400 Beacon Street. We know, for instance, that um, after breakfast, a number of the staff would retire to the library to read the newspapers. Mm -hmm. And Mrs. Eddy herself told one of her students, we get all the news going, for I want to know (laughs) what is going on and meet the ever and overcome it before it develops. In other words, she wanted to pray for the world. And that again points to the mental activity. She also expected her staff to apply what they were learning about Christian science to the work at hand, whether that was something like responding to a letter or meeting with an official of the church right down to scrubbing dishes in the kitchen. She expected them to be mentally active. It wasn't just going about duties in, in the way that perhaps another household may have. There was this amazing mental activity that was going on.
1: So there really wasn't any kind of grunt work. At, no, at the, at there was no grunt stream. work. In yeah. fact, there's
0: a famous story, you're probably aware, a woman who's a busy practitioner from the Midwest, and she came to the household and was being interviewed by Mrs. Eddy and was quite astonished to find out that Mrs. Eddy wanted her to work as a housekeeper. And she said something to the effect that she thought she'd long since risen above that sort of menial work. (laughs) And Mrs. Eddy looked at her thoughtfully, and then she said, why, my dear, I did not know that there was any.
1: Right. So you write these people that worked in her house came from very ordinary backgrounds or what might be perceived as ordinary backgrounds. Sure but then we're thrust into a situation that was extraordinary. Um, if one were to walk in this large, sprawling house back in 1908 or 1909, what would you have seen?
0: By this time in her life, Mrs. Eddy was arguably the most famous woman in America. She was the head of a church and a growing movement, and she was front-page news. So there was a lot going on here. This was not a Newport Mansion kind of house. It wasn't right. a Downton Abbey kind of house. It was large because it had to accommodate a large staff. Mrs. Eddy employed by this time, I think one worker said, between 17 and 25 people in her household. They were men and women. This would include those metaphysical workers I spoke of. Secretaries, not just one, but four. She kept them hopping. There were four men. One of the things I was interested to know when I started to think about, you know, four secretaries, that's a lot. I was astounded to learn that her mail was either picked up or delivered three times a day. Right. She had a post office box, and she sent the carriage driver down there to pick it up once a day, and then the mailman brought it twice a day. Beyond that, there were telegrams and messages often brought to the House. So there was a lot of work to do. You know, People were writing to her. They were asking her for, for help, for her opinion on world events, for all sorts of things. So in addition to the correspondence, the secretaries would handle the appointments with church officials, reporters who were clamoring for interviews with her. She had a staff that could care for these folks. You know, there were people who were cooking for them, who were cleaning the house, who were doing the laundry, who were taking care of the house and grounds, who were supervising the carriage house and the the livestock. There were two cows that provided milk for the household. So it was a big support staff in this
1: home. What you're saying, Heather, reminds me of a realization that you make in the book when you contrast your experience of visiting 400 Beacon Street as a youngster with what you come to understand about it later in working for Longyear and in beginning the process of writing about this residence. And this is what you write. And this is key to what had been lost on middle school me. 400 Beacon Street was not just Mrs. Eddy's home was also the executive headquarters of the Christian Science Movement. And as such, perhaps more than any of her other homes, this house represents Mary Baker Eddy's role as leader. There are a lot of really significant things that are going on with the Christian Science Movement that she is leading during this period.
0: One of her secretaries, Adam Dickey, had this to say about this time of her life and what they were all doing in the household. And he's speaking about Christian science and the Christian science movement. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: It was her child, her offspring, and her constant concern day and night was what was to become of this cause. Her constant anxiety was for its preservation and future unfoldment. Her entire focus was on furthering this cause and the church that she'd founded. And their lives were focused on supporting her Now, as far as some of the things that were the focus of the work there, it's pretty vast when you think about it. You know, we, we can casually say, well, she founded the Christian Science Monitor, and that's first and foremost. She is, as far as I can tell, the only woman ever to found an enduring global news organization. So that alone could have filled for me an entire decade or two or three. <laughs> right. But yeah. she did it while she was doing other things as well. In March of 1910, she authorized the first translation Of Science and Health with Key to the Scriptures, the Christian Science textbook, into another language, German, which I think is a really forward-looking move that points to the global reach of Christian science. She made final edits to Science and Health and to her other writings. Some changes were small, some were larger. Mm -hmm. One that I think is particularly interesting is she changed the title of one of the chapters in Science and Health from Christian Science and Spiritualism to Christian Science Versus spiritualism. <laughs> you know, one word, but man, that just that, it, it that puts it right in perspective, doesn't yeah. it? It just answers a lot of questions right there.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: She established Christian Science Nursing, which was a big step forward. It, it is practical care for those folks who are seeking Christian Science healing and might need a little support. She was constantly communicating with her followers through the periodicals and, and, and through the wider world, through interviews with newspapers and statements that she'd put forth to newspapers. And then of course there's settling this succession question. A lot of folks were thinking, well who's going to run the church after she's gone? And she really during these years cemented in place the fact that the church would continue based on principle, not on person. Mm-hmm. Uh, there wasn't going to be another leader. The church had its leader and she would continue to lead through the auspices of the church manual and her published writings.
1: You mentioned that, you know, as far as you can tell She's the only woman to have founded a major international newspaper. In exploring people who are working for Mary Baker Eddy in her household, was there a difference between the male staff members and the female staff members in their relationship with Mary Baker Eddy?
0: The household, it really was a family. Mm -hmm. Mrs. Eddy thought of them as family. She spoke of them as her family. And they treated each other as family. I often called each other brother and sister. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a there was a warm collegial bond between them. I really think that they all had a close bond with her. Some of them saw her more than others did. You know, obviously right. her secretaries were in and out. The metaphysical workers were in and out. Her personal maid, a young English woman by the name of Adelaide, still rarely left her side. Mm-hmm. Uh, Laura Sargent, her household manager and one of her— longest serving workers, aside from Calvin Fry, was often with her, as was Calvin. This was not an upstairs-downstairs. I had the opportunity, while I was researching the book, to visit the Biltmore Estate in Asheville, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And that's absolutely stunningly beautiful, by the way. It really does look like Downton Abbey. It's just this huge, sprawling estate. Right. And so, as I was going through, you know, I was looking at the kitchen and comparing it in my mind to 400 Beacon Street and looking at the living rooms. And then we got to the servants' quarters, They were so grim, um, Mm -hmm. just basically an iron bedstead and maybe a washstand and a straight-back chair, if they were fortunate. Just almost like prison cells. They just were so unappealing, and I just thought that would be so depressing after a day's work to go back to these spare little rooms. At 400 Beacon Street, one of the first things Mrs. Eddy did after arriving at the home was tour all of her workers' rooms just to make sure that everybody was comfortable and that they had what they needed, And when she saw that they didn't have comfortable armchairs, she made sure that they were all given one. They were purchased for all of the workers' rooms. Each of the rooms, when people come to see the home, they'll be able to see a number of these rooms. They were beautifully decorated Mm -hmm. with unique wallpaper patterns and carpet in many of the rooms. You know, it wasn't just like one size fits all. We'll just throw down some blue carpet and they'll take care of everybody. No, it was very individual. And they were warm and comfortable and they had lots of light she knew these folks were giving up their own homes mm-hmm. and in some cases their own spouses for a period of time to work for her. And she was so appreciative of that, that sacrifice they were making.
1: Well, it's, it's wonderful this picture of this family spirit that existed at 400 Beacon Street supporting Mary Baker Eddy in her work. Were they always a happy family? Or were there some days that were a little bit more difficult?
0: Oh, sure. You know, like large families, there was occasional bickering and squabbling. And one of my favorite discoveries was um, William Rathbun, I believe, noted that in Nellie Eveleth's room, Nellie was the seamstress for the household. And in her room, she had a sign posted on the wall that said, no tattling. Mm -hmm. And I saw that and I thought, huh, that's interesting. And so I dug around a little bit and unearthed a memo at the Mary Baker Eddy Library that Mrs. Eddy had written to the staff about not tattling on each other, which Mm -hmm. to me spoke volumes about what could go on behind the scenes. So, yes, there was friction at times. There was perhaps a bit of jockeying for position. There was perhaps some friction between what's been dubbed the old guard and the new guard. You Mm -hmm. know, folks like Calvin Fry, who was with Mrs. Eddy for almost 30 years, Almost constantly. I think he was away only a handful of days during those 28 years of service. And then the new folks that came in, people that were not her students, that were students of her students, Mm -hmm. perhaps like Adam Dickey and William Rathbun, they were successful businessmen from the West, bringing new ideas and new approaches East with them to the household. And so, yes, there were times when there was that sort of bickering and squabbling and things that go on within a family. But again, there was this bond of love. They were being asked to live in Christian fellowship and express those Christian qualities toward each other, mm-hmm. including a genuine sense of love. And then the bond that came from their shared focus supporting Mrs. Eddy and her work. That was always uppermost in thought, no matter what they were doing, I think.
1: It does come through so well and so thoroughly in your book this kind of spiritual family that develops at. 400 Beacon Street, but you do devote one chapter to her actual, if you will, biological family. Mm-hmm. I found that chapter so fascinating and so significant because I think it builds on this vision of Mary Baker, Eddie's human side. There's this part of her with the executive offices where you see her as leader and a, a very effective administrator, thinker, and trailblazer. But then there is this just very choice chapter that you have of this intimacy that she has and this care and this delight that she has with her grandchildren.
0: Yes, that chapter came about because for her 89th birthday in July of 1910, two of her grandsons, she had three grandsons, but two of them came to visit her from their home in the Dakotas. And that gave us an opportunity to look into her relationship with these grandchildren. She had five of them. through mm-hmm. Her son, George, and his wife had these five children, and she loved them dearly. She had seen one of them, Georgie, uh, in Pleasant View, and she, I guess uh, Mary as well, her oldest granddaughter. Georgie came as a little boy to <laughs> yeah. visit, and he remembers hiding under her desk and going <laughs> yeah. down to feed the ducks and going on a carriage ride, and she just delighted in having him. She, she loved children. Yeah. That was one of the things that has come through in all of my research about her is how much she loved children, Mm -hmm. her own and others. Yeah. Um, So then Georgie had this opportunity to come back as a young man. I think he was in his late teens. He and his brother were in their late teens. So she wanted so much for her family to be educated. It was a great disappointment to her that her, her own son, George, was not. He'd been taken from her, fostered out to another family when he was young. She was ill and couldn't care for him. And well-meaning family members had a former housekeeper from the Baker home raise him. And different efforts to try and reunite with him were not successful. Um, And at one point, they moved west. And he was told that his mother was dead, and she was told that he'd gone missing. And it was heartbreaking for her to lose this bond with her only son. Later... When he enlisted in the Civil War, he found out at that point that his mother was not dead. And so he wrote to her. And it must have been just a huge joy to her to realize that he was still around and that they'd reconnected. Hmm. So he saw her just a handful of times over the following years. But uh, he came back this one time with Georgie when Georgie was little. And then another time with her oldest granddaughter. But the correspondence between her and George and her grandchildren is quite voluminous, hmm. and it sheds a lot of light on the things that she wanted to do to help them. You know, She had a house built for them, a beautiful house mm-hmm. in Leed, South Dakota. She wanted to educate them, send them to private school, have them come back east to Harvard College, all sorts of things, but none of these things quite came to pass. Mm-hmm. But what did remain was the love, the love right. that she felt for them, yeah. and that they felt from her. When George, many, many, many decades later, was interviewed— by a biographer about that visit to 400 Beacon Street in in 1910, asking what he felt and what he when he saw her, and, and he got tears in his eyes, and he said, "I felt she loved me," mm, nice. and that's so sweet to hear that because you know I think they hadn't seen each other hardly at all over the decades, but but he really felt that love.
1: I know Mary Baker Eddy saw the value of refreshment. of of refreshing the spirit, refreshing the mind for demanding mental activity. How did people refresh themselves at 400 Beacon Street? Sure.
0: I think with the added staff, there was a little bit more free time than there had been up Mm -hmm. at Pleasant View. Right. Um, And Mrs. Eddy herself. We know she took a carriage ride every day. She once called it her one-hour cheery vacation from the desk.
1: (laughs) Wow. Um,
0: Because this was a woman who worked. You know, One of the things that impressed me the most was thinking about, here's someone who's retirement age. She's close to 90 when she moves to 400 Beacon Street. But her focus is not on sitting back, on retirement. It's on work. It's on, as she put it, uh, the work that God has given me to do, as she told a reporter the summer before the move. And she told another reporter, uh, Edwin Park from the Boston Globe, who came to see her, I think that first spring after she'd moved into the house. He came into her office, and she said, I'd ask you to sit down, but this is my time for work. It's the work of eternity. The hours do not give me time enough." And I just love that. Quite an insight into her focus during those years. But again, she did take this carriage ride, and she loved it. that She really enjoyed her carriage rides and sleigh rides in the winter. Just for the change of scene, away from the desk and the demands of her work, it's not always just a little vacation. She's often using the time for communing with God, for prayer, She told one of her staff members, I've uttered some of my best prayers in a carriage. (laughs) And, yes, she, she encouraged the staff to spend time outdoors if they could during the day when they had a bit of free time. Some folks went for a carriage ride in the morning when the horses were exercised. Others rode their bicycles. The household was a trendsetter. They had several automobiles, a couple of automobiles. And mm-hmm. some of the men in the household really enjoyed driving those, and they'd pop down to Newton Center and go to the library or do something like that. There was a group of baseball fans, and they would play sometimes baseball on the front lawn after lunch if the weather was nice. Ella Rathman and her husband liked playing catch. <laughs> Mrs. Eddy purchased a telescope for the household when she heard they had an interest in looking for a Halley's Comet. Right. So a number of the household members were reading about astronomy and climbing up on the rooftop. There's a flat space on the rooftop that they could safely look at the stars. There were a number of amateur photographers on the staff for whom I am tremendously grateful because what they produced has this historical evidence of what went on in the household. And we can look at those photographs. And and certainly for for Longyear, as we're putting this house back together, it's a wonderful way for us to interpret the rooms because you have this is how the room looked, and you know how you'd want to furnish it for visitors.
1: And if you happen to chance to be at 400 Beacon Street in the evening, yes. you might have a very musical impression of the household.
0: You certainly would have, Jonathan. <laughs> People would gather around the piano. There were three pianos in the house, and they'd sing. And sometimes they'd sing as quartets, or sometimes it would be more informal. There was a victrola in the house that had been gifted to Mrs. Eddy by Mrs. Longyear. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were a number of records, and so they could listen to lovely recordings, whether it was Caruso or hymns or folk songs of the era. There was this strange Victorian contraption called a pianola.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's kind of like a player piano, but you roll it up to a regular piano, and it does have a, a role inside of music, but instead of playing itself, these little mechanical fingers come out and play an actual keyboard. So you could have heard a piano concerto uh, from the comfort of your own home. So yes, music was a big part of life.
1: Well, you were mentioning the photography that took place at the household. And this is one of the wonderful additions to your book that really helps it come alive. The writing, of course, is, is fantastic. But there are all these visuals in the book that really give one a sense not only of what the house looked like, but of the people. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are so many wonderful images of the people, and they didn't seem to be shy. Or, or maybe Calvin Fry just snuck up on them when the <laughs> <where's laughs> I, I don't know. But they seem to take pleasure in being captured by the camera.
0: And as far as the photographs go, I want to say thank you to the Mary Baker Eddy Library for allowing us the full resources of what you have in your vault and Combined with what we had in our vault, uh, it made for a beautiful book, I think. Yeah. I wanted this to be a book that drew people in, turn the pages, and get to know folks.
1: Mm-hmm. Heather, you provide such wonderful portraits of these different members of Mary Baker staff, and it's very comprehensive. They come from all parts of the country, in some cases from other parts of the world, from a variety of backgrounds. But I think what's so meaningful about how one gets to know them in this book is One gets to know them through how they got to know Mary Baker Eddy, through this experience that they all shared. I'd love to close with something from near the end of your book. It's actually you quoting William Rathbun. He and his wife worked in Mary Baker Eddy's household. He served as a corresponding secretary for her. And as I recall, he grew up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And wasn't he the person Heather was a boy heard Lincoln's Gettysburg Address?
0: Yes, he heard Lincoln's Gettysburg Address when he was nine years old. And um, we at Longyear Museum—if you go online, I think you can hear it online. I know you can purchase it, but I yeah. think you can hear it online too. He talks about that, yeah, and, and the impression it made on him as a little boy, which is—it's pretty cool.
1: That is pretty cool. Well, he has his own little bit of an address here. He's talking to some of his students. He became a teacher of Christian science, and he says the following, quote, It has been your privilege to share in the trials and triumphs of our leader while her mission kept her here on earth. You were Christian scientists while she was. You read her words as they were originally given to the world through our periodicals. You have worked with those who have worked with her. You've been given words of hers that have never been publicly imparted or recorded. Never again can such an experience fall to the lot of mankind. Unquote. Well, it's been fabulous having this time with you, Heather. Thanks so much for taking us in to 400 Beacon Street during these these very vital years of 1908 to 1910. Uh, this is not your first pass at, at writing a book. You have several publications to your name. How did this book project for you sort of stand out in comparison to your other work as a historian?
0: As a former journalist turned accidental historian, as I call myself, okay. it wasn't the thing I ever foresaw as a career path. In that capacity, I love The Hunt, Mm -hmm. I love researching, I love digging out information, finding new tidbits that will shed light on a slice of history. I loved getting to know these people. Mary Baker Eddy, of course, I got to know her so much better during these particular years. And then the people that supported her, it's so encouraging. You know, you you see these folks, again, ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances. I find them all admirable, but getting to know them as, as individuals with their senses of humor Mm -hmm. and their wit, their sparkle, their individuality. That was very special for me. I really enjoyed this project.
1: Thank you so much for being with us today to talk about your book, Life at 400 Beacon Street, working in Mary Baker Eddy's household, and for writing the book, quite a task, but a wonderful achievement. Thanks so much, Heather.
0: Oh, you're very welcome. It's my pleasure.
1: And thank you, listeners, for joining us in this exploration with author Heather Vogel Frederick into what it was like to work for and with Mary Baker Eddy at her home and offices at 400 Beacon Street in Chestnut Hill, Massachusetts. And we hope you'll join us for our next episode as we explore what went on for the Christian Science Movement at the 1893 World's Parliament of Religions in Chicago, what has been thought of as the first major interfaith event involving the world's religions. I'm Jonathan Eder. Thanks so much for listening to Seekers and Scholars. This podcast was produced by the Mary Baker Eddy Library. Copyright 2022.